In Luke 4, uh, Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth, and this is the episode where the people who he grew up with get upset with him because he claims to be the son of God and says that the mob from the town takes him out to a cliff and they're going to shove him off the cliff to kill him because of blasphemy, because he's claimed to be the son of God. And it says, Jesus turned around and walked right through the crowd. He just didn't let them push him off the cliff. So we've got here hundreds of people, all of them intent on killing him. And Jesus being Jesus, he doesn't get afraid. He doesn't get worried. He's always in command of himself. And so he is always in command of the situation. And it says he just walked right through them. There are some people who interpret that to mean that he disappeared and just left the situation. Other people imagine it as like he parted the crowd like the Red Sea and just walked out through the middle of them. It's possible, I suppose, he just started walking toward them and they were all so incredulous that he wasn't scared of them, he wasn't going to let them kill him today, that they just backed up and let him leave the situation. But Jesus never gets flustered. He never falls into his enemy's traps. There's another situation in John 10 where the Pharisees pick up stones to stone him. They're going to throw rocks at his head to kill him. And unfortunately, that was sort of a common situation in, in ancient Israel. It was a way they publicly executed people. So everybody knows when these Pharisees are picking up stones what they're going to do. They're going to circle around him and throw rocks at his head until he's dead. And Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't get flustered. He just keeps right on going. He's been talking to them, and they pick up their stones because they're so mad that he's encircled by people who want to kill him. And it doesn't bother him in the least. He just keeps right on talking. Hey, I've done a lot of good things. Which one are you going to kill me for? And they, they take his bait instead of him taking their bait. They start arguing with him. We're not killing you because you've done good stuff. We're killing you because you're blasphemy. You claim to be the son of God. But he just doesn't let them stone him today. How did he remain so calm and in control and unperturbed in the face of threats? Well, if you were here last Sunday, you have a little bit of an idea. If you weren't here last Sunday, it's all right. You're going to catch on today. But, but Jesus was completely secure in God. He knew that God was his fortress, God is his refuge, God is his defender, and so he was never moved. He lived in the present tense of Psalm 27, verses 1 and 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. And in Psalm 3, Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. David wrote that psalm as his son Absalom has, got, has turned the whole army of Israel against him. And David says, ten thousand people camp around me. I'm not going to be afraid. In fact, last night I went to sleep and I woke up this morning because God sustained me. I don't think if there was ten thousand people camped around our house and all of them want to kill me, I don't think I would go to sleep. I think I'd be sitting at the window with my rifle. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that's, we know these verses by heart, and it, they become cliche. And you think about a real situation where there's 10,000 people out to kill you, and they're right in front of you, and Jesus is not afraid. He's not moved. And David's like, doesn't move me. Paul says, even if we toss up the mountains into the air and throw them into the ocean. 
I'm not going to be moved. I wish I was like that, but I'm not. But Jesus lived in that present tense of the protection of God. So in, in no situation was he ever out of control. In no situation was he ever a slave to fear. In no situation was he ever outside of perfect love and perfect faith for whoever he had to deal with. When he's getting jostled by the crowd, Jesus is constantly getting mobbed by crowds. Sometimes they're wanting to kill him, but mostly they're wanting to touch him to get a miracle. And the more you read the Gospels and you think about, okay, what would this look like in real life? Where there's hundreds, perhaps thousands of people coming to him, sometimes days in a row, for healing, people being brought in on stretchers, people coming on crutches, people bringing their demon-possessed family members. It is literally an insane asylum around Jesus. And he's in total command of the situation. He doesn't get in a hurry. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't move in fear or exhaustion. So in the crowd, he's getting jostled around and the woman who's, who's got the bleeding problem, she touches him and the power leaves him and she's instantly healed. And he stops and says, who touched me? There are hundreds of people around. Everybody's grabbing at him. You moms that had multiple young kids, you know what it's like to be grabbed at all the time. When we had four kids under five, sometimes I'd come home and Sarah's like, don't touch me. I have been handled enough today. You understand, you moms of young kids, you understand what it's like to get mobbed by people, and that's only three or four. Jesus has got hundreds of people around him nearly every day, and he can't get away from them. And they're constantly needy. And he's, he's totally fine. He's, not empty. he's never emptied out. He never feels insecure. So this woman touches him, and she gets healed, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Hundreds of people have touched you this morning. He's like, no, somebody touched me with faith. And the power went out. And then on the day when John the Baptist is beheaded, his, John is his cousin, possibly one of his best friends, and Herod chops his head off, and Jesus gets the news, and it says Jesus is deeply distressed, and he tries to go away into the wilderness to a deserted place to pray. And Hebrews tells us how he prayed. It says he prayed with loud screams and cries. Jesus was not unemotional. He was not stoic. you got to understand that. Jesus was not stoic. Stoic means I have no emotions. I refuse to have any feelings. I'm just going to be in command of myself by not ever feeling anything or at least not showing that. Jesus was not stoic. Stoicism is not godly. Jesus prayed with loud cries and wails. Hebrews tells us. He's in deep distress at the death of his cousin. And he's trying to get away into the wilderness. And the crowd finds out where he is. And they come out. They don't even let him pray. They come out in the night. And the next morning, there's 4,000 people there. And it says, and he had great compassion on them. And, and he fed them. This is one of the times where he multiplies food. But he does, it says he does it out of love. When he himself is deeply distressed, he had love to do a miracle, to, to feed 4,000 people. If he hadn't fed them, they wouldn't have died. I don't know how many of you know that, but if you don't eat for a day, you will not die. Just so you know. 
Jesus didn't have to feed them, but he loved them. And even though I am in great distress, I want to do this for these people. I want to take care of them. His motivation is always love. But he, he just keeps giving. There's another story where he's in the boat with the disciples, and the disciples are professional fishermen. They know boats. They know storms. There's a great storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. And these guys had been, lived their lives on this particular sea in this particular boat. They would not have gotten worried unless that storm reached like level 9 and 10. And they are afraid for their lives. So we can know the storm is big and that boat is going up and down and up. And Jesus is so tired, he's sleeping through it all. This is not a covered boat. This is an open boat. He's getting crashed over with waves. He's that tired that does not wake him up. And the disciples grab him and in panic, Jesus, don't you care that we're going down? And he stands up and he masters the situation. He's not moved in fear. He's not moved in anger at these guys. He shows a little frustration at that point, but it's not sin. It's like, okay, guys, when are you going to have faith? But he just masters the situation because he's always in control of himself, even when he's that tired. And in the garden the night before he's crucified, as he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, please, I don't want to go to the cross, but I will do what you want. Your will be done, not mine. When he's under such stress, he's bleeding great drops of blood through his sweat pores and his forehead. His disciples are with him, and he says, can you please pray for me? Just an hour. But it's the middle of the night, and they all fall asleep. And he's praying desperate, wailing prayers, and they're sleeping through it. And he's all alone. He's as alone as any human being has ever been. And his closest friends fall asleep on him. They're totally unaware of his distress. And he wakes them up in patience and love, not in frustration or anger or some friends you guys are. Why can't you stay awake? He's like, guys, please. And he goes off again. and he, at Three times he has to wake them up. And he never loses his temper. He's in command of himself and he's in command of the situation. How is it that he's not ever moved in fear or weariness or frustration? He doesn't even get hangry when he's fasting. It's because he knows, my father is my refuge. He is my source of everything. I always have what I need. He was so one with God that he didn't depend on his disciples to take care of him. He was taking care of them. God is my strong tower and my fortress and my hiding place. And even though when I am tired or I am in great distress, I can still love, I can still give, I can still serve. The story that I want to highlight the most today is the story of what we call the Last Supper. On Thursday night before Jesus goes to the cross on, on Friday is what we call the Last Supper. It's the Passover um, on the Jewish calendar. We celebrate it as communion or the Lord's Supper. But at that dinner, he does something that's just this absolutely amazing, given his emotional state. Eight or ten days before the story we're about to read, before Jesus came to Jerusalem, and we have what we call Palm Sunday, and the people are celebrating with their palm branches, and Hosanna, Hosanna, and more than a week before that, before this story we're about to read, Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I have a mission, and I'm greatly distressed until it's done. So, 
Eight or ten days before, Jesus is already saying, I am under a lot of stress because I know what's coming when I get there. He knew he was going to the cross. He had told the disciples over and over again, I know what's coming, I know what's coming, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to die, but it's okay, I'm going to raise from the dead in three days. But he's still greatly distressed about the events that are coming. Then eight or ten days into this, we get to what we call the Last Supper, the story we're about to read. But let me set some more context. Two or three hours after what this story we're about to read, two or three hours later is when he's in the garden and he is praying in such distress, he is sweating great drops of blood. There's blood coming from his forehead because of the pressure that he's under. Nobody here has ever been under that kind of stress. Jesus was more alone and more stressed than anybody ever has been in that moment. Uh, for some context, my college roommate, who was also the best man at our wedding, was a football player and a weightlifter, and he'd go to the gym on campus, um, and he went to the gym one night, and he's lifting weights, and he's bench pressing, which is the one where you lay on your back and you, you push the weight up, okay, for those of you who don't know lifting weights. So my max in bench pressing back then when I was 19 and 20 was 250 pounds, which I was pretty proud of, but he regularly did 350 and one night he tried to max out at 400, and he didn't get it done. They put 400 pounds on the bar, he's laying on his back, and it's on his chest, and he's got to push it up just one time. That's, and, and he, you know how weightlifters, they'll, you know, they push, and they grunt, and they scream, and they, you know, to get the weight up, and, and he did that, and he didn't get it. So the guys that are on either end of his bar, they, they rack it up for him, and they look at him, and they're like, dude, something happened to your face. And he gets a white towel, and he wipes his face, and it's pink. He had blown the capillaries in his skin. He was pushing so hard. He had blown the capillaries in his skin. He had sweat microscopic drops of blood trying to bench press 400 pounds. Jesus sweat great drops of blood in emotional pain. You with me? Jesus is under a load. And this is just two or three hours after the story we're about to read. That's the, that's the context of what's going on inside of him as he does this amazing act. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Another translation said he loved them to the uttermost. Jesus never did anything outside of love, but this act, we're told specifically, I'm doing this because I want to show you the uttermost of my love. Even though he is under the kind of pressure that in two or three hours, his face is going to blow out. Isaiah says his face was so bad after this that he wouldn't even be recognizable as human. I'm under that kind of stress I want to love you in this moment right now. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but you will know after this. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken their garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are them if you do them. So foot washing 2,000 years ago in the ancient Israelite culture and in many cultures still today in, the wor- in this modern world, it's cultural practice to take your shoes off when you come in the house. And in ancient Israel, they didn't have closed shoes. They had open sandals and you're walking on dirt roads or you're plowing in a dirt field and your feet would get sweaty and dirty. And so it was the, not just a custom, it was the rule. You never wore your shoes into somebody else's house or your own house even, which I think is a good rule. You know, the places your boots go in public, the, Wal- the floor at Walmart has got to be disgusting. And you come home from Walmart and you track all that through your own house, I think everybody should take their shoes off at the front door. Anyway, you had to take your shoes off and then you had, your feet were, would have been filthy dirty and they needed washed. And it was the job of the lowest servant, the lowest ranking person in the household to wash the feet of everybody that came in. Because it was a dirty job, because it was a humble job, because you had to bow in front of the person that you're washing their feet, and it was just, it was the job that nobody wanted to do, so the, the low person on the totem pole got to do it. It was such a, a humiliating job in their eyes that if a Jewish person had another Jewish person as a servant, whether it was a slave or a paid servant, the Jewish servants were not allowed to wash other Jews' feet. You had to have a Gentile servant do it because it was so demeaning. And here's Jesus doing it for his disciples. And they, so they knew what, he, what it was about. Earlier in dinner, they'd gotten in an argument. The disciples had gotten in an argument over who was the greatest in the kingdom. When Jesus sits on his throne, I'm going to sit beside him. They'd had this dispute, and it wasn't the first time, it probably wasn't even the third time, that they had had this argument about who was the highest ranking of the disciples, and they're, they're jostling in competition for position with each other, and Jesus is like, oh, Father, what do we do with these guys? And he strips himself naked, or at least down to his underwear, and he takes a towel, and he tucks it into, around his waist or into the waistband of his underwear, and he gets on his knees in front of his disciples. You can know that for sure because his disciples are sitting on the floor. Chairs hadn't been invented yet. Uh, They're sitting on the floor and he's wiping their feet with a towel that's wrapped around his waist. So it's right there. He's, He's kneeling in front of these people who call him master and Lord. And he washes, he does the dirty job. He washes their feet and then he dries them with a towel. And this is why Peter has a, a concern. It's like, no, Jesus, you can't do that. That's, that's not the way this works. Let me read the story in another translation. This is the Passion Translation, the same verses. Jesus knew that the night before Passover would be his last night on earth, before leaving this world to return to the Father's side. All throughout his time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them. 
And now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. He longed to show them the full measure of his love. He longed to show them the fullness of his love. He isn't just doing this because nobody else did. He isn't doing it because it needed done or because he wanted to prove a point. He isn't doing this just to model it for us. I'm doing this because I want to. I love you. I want to serve you. I want to make myself the lowest servant of you. Before their evening meal had begun, the accuser had already planted betrayal in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now Jesus was fully aware that the Father had placed all things under his control, for he had come from God and was about to go back to be with him. So he got up from the meal and he took off his clothing and he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' dirty feet and to dry them with his towel. But when Jesus got to Simon Peter, he objected and said, I can't let you wash my dirty feet, you're my Lord. Jesus replied, you don't understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing, but as soon it will be clear to you. Peter looked at Jesus and said, you will never wash my feet, never. But Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you will never be able to share life with me. So Peter said, Lord, in that case, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said, you're already clean, Peter. You've bathed completely and you just need your feet to be cleansed. But that can't be said of all of you. For Jesus knew that one of them was about to betray him. And that's why he said not all of them were clean. After washing their feet, he put his robe on and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I just did? Jesus said, you've called me your teacher and Lord and you're right, for that's who I am. If your teacher and Lord had just washed your dirty feet, then you must follow this example that I've set for you and wash one another's dirty feet. Now do this for each other, what I have just done for you. I speak to you a timeless truth. A servant is not superior to his master. An apostle is never greater than the one who sent him. So now put this into practice, what, you have done, what I've done for you, and you will experience a life of happiness enriched with untold blessings. In this passage, the word wash is used every time until Peter says, no, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, I have to, or you can't have any part of me. And then so Peter says, okay, Jesus, my, my head and my hands and everything. The next sentence, Jesus doesn't use the word wash, he uses the word bathed in the Greek and in the English. And he says, you're already bathed, Peter, you're already clean, you just need your feet washed. Well, what's he talking about? Well, when you're baptized... When you come to Christ and ask for forgiveness of your sin, you are washed in the blood of Jesus. Once and for all, your sins are gone, your guilt is gone, you inherit eternal life. God says, I don't remember your sin anymore. You're clean, you're bathed. And this passage says everybody was except Judas. Everybody in real faith and real salvation was clean-hearted. But Jesus says, but if I don't wash your feet, we can't have communion. You can't have any part of me. Because daily life defiles us. You get in a conversation at work, you hear a story or a joke you shouldn't have and now it's in your imagination, you watched a movie you shouldn't have, you said this or somebody said this to you and daily life just gets us dirty and it separates us from communion with Jesus and Jesus says every day you need your feet washed. You, you don't need to be rebathed, you haven't lost your salvation, you're not Guilty of your sin once you have asked for forgiveness and been baptized you. Your sin is gone once and for all. But Jesus says, if, I don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. So, yes, Jesus is telling us 
to be humble, to do the dirty jobs. There should be no task that's beneath us. But he's talking more about, he's not talking about cleaning toilets and changing diapers. It is that, but because it is. It is taking care of people in the most menial tasks and the dirty jobs and, and there, there shouldn't be anything that's beneath us or that, that we wouldn't do. But when he says, if you, if, I don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have any communion with me, obviously he's not talking about road dust on our toes. He's talking about the sin of daily life. It just gets on us. We didn't mean for it to, but it did. And we just, every day we need to wash. There is a parallel in the Old Testament. In Exodus 29, God gives this initiation ceremony for a new priest. When a, priest turned, when a Levite turned 30, he became a priest. His initiation ceremony was to stand in the courtyard of the temple in a private ceremony with the other priests. He would, they would strip him naked and dump a bucket of water over his head. And now he's washed completely. He's holy and clean, and now he can go into the temple and minister before the Lord. But in Exodus 30, God says, every day when you priests come into my house, you wash your hands and feet. I've washed you in initiation. I've made you holy, and now you're a priest to me, and that never changes. But every day you come into my presence, you wash yesterday off. Do you see it? This is what Peter, or Jesus is telling Peter. You don't need a bath. I already bathed you with my words. I've made you clean. Your heart is clean. But, but I, have to, I have to wash your feet, Peter, every day. Or you can't have any part of me. So Peter being Peter, he's like, all right, Jesus, do it all. He's like, no, we don't need to do that again. We're just washing today off, of your, off your feet. Because Jesus knew who he was and where he came from and what he had and where he was going, He was complete master of the situation. You and I as believers know that we've been born of God and that one day we're going to God and that in Christ we have all things. Therefore, we ought to be able to follow his example and serve others. What Jesus knew determined what he did. The disciples would have been truly shocked to see him take his clothes off and wrap a towel around his waist and wash their feet. That would have been an unthinkable thing. But he's... He's addressing what they argued about just an hour before during dinner. He knew there was a competitive spirit in the hearts. And he gave them an unforgettable lesson in humility. And by his actions, he rebuked their selfishness and pride. It's really profound how he does it. And he's perfectly gentle and perfectly soft and perfectly kind and patient He doesn't chew them out. He doesn't get angry at them for having this argument about who's the most important. He just, while they're arguing, he just shuts down the argument by taking his clothes off and putting a towel on and starts washing their feet. And they understand his point for sure. It's it's absolutely amazing how kind and soft he is and then add to it the distress that we know is on him personally, that he's able to do this. The Father, he says, the Father has given me all things. And then he strips naked. He says, I own everything, the whole world. And he picks up a servant's water bucket with muddy water. 
His humility was not from his poverty, but from his riches. And then Jesus tells us, I want you to do what I did. So in a physical, daily life, practical lesson, that means nothing is beneath us. If there's a diaper to be changed, I'll do it. If there's a toilet to be scrubbed, I will do it. I will serve whoever, whenever, however I can, whoever God puts in front of me, I'll do it. I'm not saying that I do that successfully. I mean, that's our response to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I will do that. But it, it's more than that because Jesus says, if you, don't, if, I don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, Peter, you can't have a part of me. You can't have, we can't be one. So he's not just talking about scrubbing toilets and cleaning diapers. He's talking about us ministering to each other, removing the defilement of daily life so that we can have communion with Jesus. That we're to wash each other's feet so that the people that we serve can have oneness with Jesus. Here, let me help you get rid of what happened to you. Help you clean off the mess you've made today so that we can restore you to Jesus. And there shouldn't be any situation that, is, that we're too busy to help in, whether it's in your family or your neighborhood or a coworker or whatever. Yeah, okay, I'll wade into your mess and help you clean it up. No amens on that yet, huh? But it's not just that Jesus says, be humble and do any task. And it's not just that he says, serve one another, washing each other off so that, so that everybody can experience me. There's the additional factor of Jesus is in terrible duress while he's doing this. While he's taking care of Loving his disciples, he himself has a terrible burden. How did he do that so tenderly, so lovingly, so thoroughly unselfish? Does he actually expect me to serve my fellow believers while I'm tired? When I'm stressed out, when I'm busy, when I'm hangry? When I have my own huge problems, when I have my own broken heart? Yes. I think he does. At least we can, if we're willing to, because he proved that we can. How did he do that? It's because God is our strong tower and our refuge and our hiding place. And Jesus knew, I have everything I have from the Father. We're told what Jesus was thinking when he did this. It's verses 3 and 4 in John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel. I need to give credit to Bill Johnson for this part. I heard him preach this, and I'm just passing it on to you. That Jesus knew that God had given him all things. That's provision. Jesus knew, while he's in terrible distress, I have everything I need so I can give myself away because God's going to fill me up. I will never run out of what I need because I have everything from my Father. That's provision. The good news is God's given you everything you need for life and godliness also. So that draining person, that hard-to-get-along-with coworker, or that family member that just pulls on you and sucks the life out of you, guess what? You can still love that person. You can still serve them 
and like Jesus, not get all flustered and wound up and escalate the situation. You can de-escalate the situation. You can give yourself away because I know I can go to God and get filled back up. So I can love this very difficult person or I can serve in this very difficult way or I can do this thing that terrifies me because it doesn't terrify Jesus and he's given me everything for life and godliness. I have everything I need. So number one, Jesus had provision. He knew he had everything. Number two, Jesus says he knew that he had come from God. That's his identity. I know who I am. I know who I am, so I can do and be anything. It doesn't demean me. It doesn't humiliate me to be the lowest servant because I know who I am. I'm the son of God. It doesn't lessen me or cheapen me in any way to serve in a lower way because I know who I am. There are so many people that want the mic, they want to be on the stage, they want their name on the sign, they, they want the promotion, they want the raise, I want, I want, I want, and, and Jesus is like, if you want to be great in my kingdom, go low. Don't fight for position, don't press for your own will, give the other people what they need, serve in love, that's what makes you great in my kingdom, but the reason, or the way we do it is, This doesn't change who I am at all. I can do the dirty job because I know I'm a daughter of God. I can can do this, not just because God has made it possible and given me provision, but I know who I am. This doesn't cheapen me in any way. It doesn't matter if the teacher or the coach never recognizes my talent. Doesn't matter if the pastor ever notices. Doesn't matter if mom and dad ever get this. I know who I am. And I'm okay. And I can be at peace. If nobody ever knows, I just keep washing feet. Jesus, had, he knew his identity. Jesus had provision and he had identity. Well, you and I don't know that we're like the only begotten son of God, like Jesus did. But we know that God made us who we are. God made me who I am. This is me. And I can serve in any way. It doesn't cheapen who I am. It doesn't lessen who I am. and Nobody ever has to notice because God's noticing. Jesus had provision. He had identity. And number three, Jesus, it says he knew he was going to God. That's destiny. I know where I'm going. I know I have everything that I'm going to need. I know who I am and I know where I'm going. Provision, identity, and destiny is what made Jesus what made it possible for Jesus to love his disciples so selflessly when he is in such great distress. Paul said, whether I live or die, it's all Jesus. I'm just going to pour myself, I'm going to empty myself out today, loving the people in front of me, doing the work God's given me to do, whatever it is he's set for your hand to do, do it with all your heart, give it all away. God will fill you back up. I've got a destiny. It doesn't matter if today's my day or, or not. I just, I'm... Whether I live or die, it's all Christ. It's the way Paul lived. It's the way Jesus lived. It's the way I would like to live. And you too. I know most everybody in the room. I know you. I know you. You want this. Provision, identity, and destiny. Jesus knew that the Father had given him all things into his hand. That he had come from God and he was going to God. And then lastly, I just want to point out again, notice his motivation is love. His motivation is not duty. His motivation is not, well, this has to be done, so I guess I'll be the mature one and do it. 
His motivation is not even to teach us a lesson. Although it is that, he said, I modeled this for you on purpose. So he is teaching us a lesson, but his motivation is love. Anything we do serving another person or serving the Lord has to be motivated by love. Or it just becomes empty, dead duty. It becomes a show. See how humble I am. See how busy I am. See how many people I'm taking care of. That is never going to work. It can become a lot of things, but if it's real, genuine, true, selfless love, that never fails. Overcomes everything. What you believe determines how you behave. Jesus believed with all his heart. Even in his night of crisis, he believed with all his heart, I have everything I need in God. I have come from God and I'm going to God. So I can give again. I can love again. I can serve again. And not just I can, I want to. I want to show these guys how much I love them. What you believe determines how you behave. What you know with all your heart will determine how you act. And you can come to church and you can say amen to my sermons and you can sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. But then in the crisis moment, what you really believe is how you will behave. Do you really believe you have everything you need? Do you really believe God made you who you are and he's with you, that he is your defense and your strong tower, and I don't have to be the one to escalate this situation. I can be the one to calm it down. I can be the one to do the work. I can be the one to take care of this. I can be the one to pray and get an answer. And You can. You can. But it starts with knowing that you know that you know that you know. God made me who I am and I belong to him and I have everything I need to face this situation. I have everything I need to love this person. I have everything I need to forgive this. Amen.